I'm Denise Bishop. Um, we've been in Oxford for seven years and love it here. This is home now. Um, three kids, one started grad school at Ole Miss in mental health counseling because she was destined to do that. Pete and I are both therapists. And then my middle child is a freshman um, and he's doing business. And then Meg, the youngest, is 11th grade. So we're kind of in the thick of raising young adults who are making their own decisions. Um, so that's a new, new phase of life, it seems. Um, I wanted to just give y'all, first of all, kind of my, like, my biography. Uh, what is it that you give when you, not biography, is that what it is? When you write a paper and you cite your sources? What's it called? Bibliography. There it is. Like, yeah, I'm going to give you my biography. I was born. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I have used Tim Keller's Prodigal Prophet a ton. The Bible Project, Tim Mackey has a new part of their website that's called The Classroom, and they're doing in-depth, he calls it like seminary-level classes on a variety of subjects, and he has one on Jonah. It's really great, and y'all, I did them during lunch, so it's not like it's some huge time demand. So tons from that. I've also been reading a book called Low Anthropology. Has anybody heard of that book yet? Um, it's David Zoll. He's the guy who wrote Seculosity, which is another book I have loved. And it's really about having a, a, an appropriate, godly view of humans. Um, and it really has influenced how I've, how I've looked at Jonah. It just kind of meshed together in a cool way. So before we get to the belly of the fish, all right, let's think about what we have kind of unpacked so far about what it's like to be Jonah at this point. So. We know a few things. He's a prophet, which means that God speaks directly to him, and I don't know what that means. Um, but he, God has a message for him to take to Nineveh um, to call out against the Assyrians, and we know the Assyrians are really, really bad people. They are very, very violent and evil and destructive, um, and Jonah is not happy with this message from God that he's supposed to take to them, and so he takes off running in the opposite direction. So he wants to get as far away from God as he can. Um, so he goes down to Joppa. Remember the downs in your study? He goes down to Joppa, down into the belly of the boat, down into the ocean, and then he'll go down into the belly of the whale fish today. Um, so he's an Israelite. We know that. We know he's a prophet. Um, he knows how God works. He knows that God wants to offer mercy to the Assyrians in Nineveh. And he knows that even if there is a teeny tiny chance that the Assyrians repent, there is zero chance that God's not gonna offer them mercy and he wants no part of that. He is not happy with God loving his enemies. So if you think about it, Jonah is really double-minded. We've already seen that in chapter one. If you think about it, like God spoke directly to him. Um, it's, it's wacky to think that he heard directly from God and also thinks that he can get away from him. Like, it's wacky in, uh, in verse 9 of chapter 1 when he says, um, I serve the God who created the seas and the, and the dry land. And yet he thinks he can get away from God on a boat on the sea that God created and controls. It's just like double-minded wacky, wackadoo stuff, isn't it? Like, on one hand, he thinks he's powerful enough to get away from God, the creator of the universe. 
And on the other hand, he knows God is sovereign over the, mind in the, sea, over the land and the sea. Um, double-minded. And not only that, but he seems kind of apathetic in chapter 1, right? He goes into the bottom of the um, boat and takes a nap. Like, I'm thinking, is he depressed? That's where my mind goes. Clinically depressed. There's no way around it. Um, so, there, so the pagans on the boat are praying, and they wake him up, and they're like, hey, dude, come on, pray with us. And he doesn't pray. He just says, dude, throw me over. Just throw me. It's almost like he'd rather die, which we'll learn next week that that is, in fact, the case. He'd rather die than have to take God's offer of mercy to his enemies. So it's not like he's even concerned with the sailors or the captains. He's just more concerned with not obeying God. Um, So he's been so self-involved at this point, so convinced he's right or God's wrong, that he's just on this downward spiral. Um, And so what do they do, of course? They throw him overboard. Um, And they actually, the sailors repent. Remember that, too. So the vehicle of death now, which is right where he's headed, the vehicle of death is this giant fish that swallows him up, but it actually becomes a vehicle of grace that God uses to open Jonah's eyes. So let's, let's go into, we're going to start with verse 17 in chapter 1 and read through chapter 2. Let me find it. Okay. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and your voice heard me, you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. So let's talk about the fish. Okay. It's only mentioned in three verses. And, of course, it raises all sorts of questions like what kind of fish? Was it a cute whale? Was it one of those angry things with giant teeth that have the light thing? Have you all seen that one, haven't you? It's like... You can only see with, with night vision things on the bottom of the ocean. Was it slimy? Was there leg room? How do fish digest their food? I definitely went down a Google rabbit hole with that one. Did you know some fish have like three stomachs? There you go. Um, was, like, could he breathe? But, you know, it really seems apparent that because the fish is only mentioned a couple times, it's not the, that's not the drama. The drama here in the story is really not the fish. The drama is that things look as bad as they can look for Jonah, Um, He's made a huge mess. He's gone as far down as he can go. He's headed toward death. And the drama that's the focus here is what's happening in Jonah's heart. It's about God who relentlessly pursues his people. 
So let's think about what we've seen in Scripture before about this idea of being swallowed up. Um, it's usually used in terms of judgment. I think you saw that in your homework. Psalm 21, 8 and 9. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. In the book of Hosea, remember Hosea is a prophet who marries a prostitute as a symbol of God's relationship with an unfaithful Israel. Chapter 8, verse 4 says, They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. And verse 8, Israel is swallowed up already. They are among the nations as a useless vessel. And then Jeremiah, Jeremiah calls Babylon um, the great monster who has swallowed him up when he's talking about the Babylonian exile. Psalm 124, if, had, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Our help is the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Doesn't that sound familiar? Um, and yet, the remnant of Israel has always been preserved by God, whether it's in the wilderness, the belly of Babylon, or the belly of a great big fish. Jonah is swallowed whole because God is relentless in going after those he loves. The Lord preserves Jonah by showing him what turns out to be a severe mercy. It's painful in order to show Jonah his grace. See, Jonah's radical rejection of God really requires a radical treatment. And that is how God is faithful, to come alongside him in that way. And it really illustrates for us, y'all, when you think about a fish swallowing a dude, how sin turns everything upside down. Um, what a crazy story. You know, God mercifully is bringing Jonah to the end of himself so that he can show him, capital H, himself. So we'll learn in chapter 4 that there are 120,000 people in Nineveh and some cows, if y'all have read that far, um, that God is concerned about. But right now, and really throughout the whole book, what we see is that God is personally, miraculously, attentively dealing with one, the heart of Jonah. Um, and that is his highest priority. There is no sin, y'all, that is outside of his redemptive reach. So have you ever felt like life has swallowed you whole? Have you ever felt like you have made such a big mess out of things that you are helpless and hopeless? Or like your bad choices have rendered you unlovable, like you've been disqualified somehow? Um, J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, you know, she gave a, a commencement speech at Harvard a few years ago, and she talked about failure. What an interesting commencement speech, huh? Um, she was at a place in her life where she was unemployed. She was, um, had gone through a recent divorce. She was on welfare, um, and she was clinically depressed. And here's what she said in her speech. Why do I talk about the benefits of failure? Simply because failure meant a stripping away of the inessential. I stopped pretending to myself that I was anything other than what I was and began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might never have found the determination to succeed in the one area I, tr I believed I truly belonged. I was set free, 
because my greatest fear had been realized and I was still alive. I still had a daughter whom I adored. I had an old typewriter and a big idea. And so rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I built my life. Jonah is experiencing something that many of us have and probably all of us will at some point, just feeling buried deep. That's in his language, right? Look at it. Verse 2, he says he's in the belly, belly of Sheol. That is considered the place of death, um, a place of extreme anguish and pain, the darkest place of despair. He talks about in verse 3 being in the deep, the heart of the sea, surrounded by floods, waves, and billows. Um, verse 4, he says he's been driven away. Verse 5, the water's closed in to take his life. There's seaweeds wrapped around his head. That sounds bad. Um, Verse 6, the bars closed in on me forever. God's mercy seems really severe to us, y'all, when we suffer. And I know that this is hard. It's hard to talk about suffering in that way. Um, when things fall apart and we're exhausted and broke, a lot of times, broken and broke sometimes, a lot of times that's when we will be open to look to God, right? So what about the three days and nights? Let's talk about that. So this is usually an expression of like a, a journey toward death, um, an ominous journey, a time of testing, a time of danger. In Genesis 22, Adam took, uh, Abraham was instructed to, by God to take Isaac to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. It took him three days, three-day journey, a journey towards Isaac's death that actually resulted in Isaac being saved. In 2 Kings 20, when King Hezekiah was dying and he prayed, he pleads with God to prolong his life. The Lord tells him, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. I will heal you. On the third day, go to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life on the third day. So three days and nights, out of the belly of Sheol, the place of utter hopelessness. Now Jonah prays. Now he prays. Um, we heard the sailors pray. Now we get to hear Jonah pray. So being stripped of his self-sufficiency, he cries out. Verse 2 tells us. <clears throat> so let's listen to the references of crying out. Um, <clears throat> this is the place where I'm like, can I read all this? Um, let me see if I can edit it just a smidge. 2 Samuel 22 is where I am, and maybe if you have some time, you can read the whole thing. Um, this is David. In my distress, this is verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Verse 17. He sent me from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me, they confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Psalm 57, 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Israel cried out <clears throat> lots of times when they were in exile. Remember Exodus 2 and Deuteronomy 26. Psalm 145 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. Have you ever had a time when all you could do was cry out? Um, this may come as a shock to you, but I'm not athletic. Um, and when we were little, like a lot of families, we raised our children at the pool. And the pool that we went to, had, we had two pools. And so there was the upper pool that was like two feet to five feet. And then there was a waterfall that went down into the lower pool that was a solid just 10 foot. It was just like all the whole thing around, just big 10 foot deep, deep, scary pool. 
And I was in the lower pool with the youngest, um, and I looked over the waterfall, and I saw our Matthew, who was probably seven, and he's like in the deep end doing this thing. And all I can do is just scream. I'm trying to swim, and I'm not getting anywhere. I can't hurl myself over the waterfall because I'm not athletic. Um, and Pete is on the edge of the pool, and I'm screaming that Matthew's drowning. Have you ever been in a place where all you can do is cry out. That's all, there's nothing else you can do. End of the story I have to tell y'all. The big pool on the other side of the waterfall had a little landing that was about three feet deep. He was standing. <laughs> Every parent around the pool was like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> typical. Uh, that's, that's not the only time that kind of thing's ever happened to me. Um, so, a time when all you could do is cry out. This is this, and what we see is that God hears and He answers every single time. He hears. Maybe not. Maybe He doesn't answer in the way we prefer. Like we'll see that from Jonah in a couple of weeks. You know, Jonah's prayers aren't even fancy. Not really, but he's praying the Psalms. We don't have to have some kind of eloquent. You know, God gives us prayers right there in His Word. Um, he prays from what is it like ten? Is that right, Anna? Did ten different psalms? Like, she's like, I've done so much since then. I don't remember. Um, but he's speaking, speaking directly to God, and he's coming to terms with where he is. He sees whatever put him in this situation, whether it's his pride or his self-sufficiency or racism against the Assyrians, God is not anxious or surprised by it. Um, Sandra McCracken had an article recently in Christianity Today, and here's what she says. God is not surprised or repelled by our egos. Amen. When we pretend we know more than we do, he does not get swept up in the undercurrents of our pride and insecurity. He beckons to us instead, build our lives upon him, the solid rock of truth. And so now it's like Jonah sees that he's actually being driven away um, rather than running. It's the, first, it's the same word used in Genesis 3, 24, when Adam and Eve were, um, were driven out of the garden. Um, it seems like instead of thinking that he knows better than God, like Jonah's beginning to doubt his own doubts about God. That's a Tim Keller thing. You know, just doubt your own doubts. Jonah had gotten what he wanted, and he realized that it was really the opposite. It did the opposite of make him feel better. Who can identify with that? It brought him to the point of death where he looks and remembers his holy temple. Okay, what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> the temple was the place where the Ark of the Covenant lived. Remember the Ten Commandments were in it. The, um, the mercy seat was on top. Um, and that's where God promised to speak to his people, Exodus 25. That's the, the temple was where God met with his people. It was also where the priests offered sacrifices. So Leviticus 16 where um, the priest would make atoning sacrifices for the people's sins by sacrificing a ram and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. So the temple and the sacrificial system reminds us that it requires the blood of another to secure our access to God and that we can't fix ourselves. Um, and it's only when the death of another secures our forgiveness that we can speak to God. And so now that Jonah's at the end of himself, <clears throat> he finally looks to God rather than his own self. So verse 6, two of the most powerful words, yet you, yet you brought my life up from the pit. 
At the bottom, he realizes his life does not belong to him. And finally, he remembers the steadfast love of the Lord is his only hope. It looks like faith is starting to rise, doesn't it? As Jonah literally cries out from the depths. And now he's remembering God's goodness. He remembers that God hears our prayers. He remembers empty and deceptive idols. In this case, I think Jonah's idol is probably something like his ego or his independence. Um, and those idols do nothing, but it's the steadfast love of the Lord that gives us hope. The steadfast love of the Lord. This is God's love and his kindness and his, his loyalty and his faithfulness and his mercy all wrapped up in one. And the faith that Jonah shows, it's not a skill. It's not like a talent. Um, he's realizing he's exhausted all of his capabilities. He's been stripped of the illusion that he knows better than God. And then he ends verse 9 with thanksgiving and a commitment. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And acknowledgement that the Lord alone saves, that salvation belongs to God. So this means if someone is saved, that's God's doing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his doing. It's not that we do some of the saving and he does some of the saving. That's not how it is. And the truth of the gospel is that we are incapable of saving ourselves. And so that is just like Jonah's inability to save himself from the belly of this fish. And so God spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We went to see some old friends this summer, one of whom is a Reformed Episcopal priest, and he said, be sure you tell them that Jonah should really be grateful that God did not command the fish to have him come out the other end. <laughs> I debated it because I was like, that's not like a women's Bible study kind of thing you say, but I'm glad y'all thought it was funny. <laughs> He's a priest, for goodness sake. So I figured like, um, so why is it that Jonah gets vomited out? He gets spewed out. Where do we see references to that? Um, Leviticus 18. 24 through 30. I think this was in your homework. Moses warns Israel not to behave like the Egyptians. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all of these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. Revelation 3, 15 through 17. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why would Jonah be spewed out? Let's think about it. What do you notice that seems kind of wacky about his prayer? Kind of like, huh, things that make you go, hmm, about his prayer. Did you notice that he never really confesses anything? Doesn't seem weird. Um, in fact, like the Psalms that he's quoting, the confession is often a part of those Psalms. Like 32.5, I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We didn't see that in Jonah's prayer, did we? You know, in fact, when we start thinking about like how he refers to God, a lot of times it's like, almost seems like he's blaming him in a way. Like you caused all this bad stuff that's happened to me I don't it's we can't we can't read into like what his motives are or what his character is <clears throat> he he references himself like 23 times um, and never in a negative way y'all did y'all notice that like huh it's odd um, and it kind of in verse 8 you know those who uh, what is what's the stupid idols I added stupid that's not in there <clears throat> 
Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's not really clear that he's referring to his own idols. Like, I think you could make a decent argument. But again, he's talking about the pagans on the boat who actually repented. It's just weird. Like, there's so many things that the author just does not make us privy to. Um, but it kind of seems like in his prayer, like, even though it's good to pray, we, we pray about ourselves all the time. It's not that. It's just like, kind of seems like Jonah's feeling a little put upon. A little bit when you start reading it. Like, something just doesn't quite, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, we, we don't know the rest of the story, what we do, actually. And so then it's like, oh, well, you can kind of look at the prayer and think, that's kind of, might be what's happening there. There's still like a sense of superiority almost or self-righteousness a little bit. Um, did you know that people generally have a tendency to evaluate themselves as like smarter than we really are or like more capable? Than we, did y'all know that? <coughs> it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's a real thing. I thought about Dunning and Kruger like obviously if those are two people, did they each think they were smarter than the other <laughs> when they were coming up <coughs> with, that, with that theory? Um, you know, we're all inclined to overestimate our own abilities, and I kind of wonder if that's a little bit about what's going on in Jonah's heart. Um, what a realistic depiction of how stupid and confusing we can be, isn't it? Um, self-centeredness, y'all, it doesn't make us self-aware. Sin turns us in on ourselves, and we really need to be pulled outside of ourselves to places that show us our need. Um, and oftentimes that happens in suffering. How can God be so patient? How can I trust that he has my best in mind? Let's look at the links that God is going to for this one rebellious, misguided prophet. Um, and here's the takeaway for today, y'all. This story is about God's grace. The story of Jonah is about God's grace and his mercy, his goodness, his compassion, his kindness. Think about how silly Jonah looks, y'all. Um, He's pitted himself against the creator of the universe. He's probably slimy, you know, being spit out like fish guts. Um, he's helpless. Uh, and you think about a fish swallowing a man. It's such a reversal of, of the order, of God's order for man to rule over creation. Where we end up serving the created rather than the creator when we get so involved with our sin. And so Jonah gets to this place of obedience through a figurative death. Um, he had to get to the pits, even if it was half-hearted. And the Lord knows that only when we're worn out from struggling, when we made such a huge mess, when we reach the end of ourselves, that's when we'll look to him. When we've been unburdened of our illusions about what we think we deserve, we'll be able to see the grace we've been given. So you may have heard me say this before. Pride and self-loathing are two sides of the same coin. So maybe instead of thinking of yourself as like prideful, like you know better, maybe you're more inclined to think you're disqualified from God's grace because of the terrible thing you did junior year. Or maybe you're inclined to think you've disqualified from God's grace because of how much you question and doubt his goodness. Or maybe because you feel hurt by your family or by your church and you think it's created an irreversible mark against you. The message of Jonah is that if you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. Can you trust that God has your best in mind? The story is, of Jonah is an example of how God is after your heart, y'all. He's after our divided, confused, double-minded selves. 
And he, the merciful God, works patiently with us, flawed and clueless as we can be. So God meets us just like he met John with persistent love that absorbs anything that can be thrown at it at just the right time. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the good news here is that we are justified by the better Jonah. Greater than Jonah in Matthew 12 is what Jesus says about himself. And here's how Tim Keller puts it, because I'm going to try to say it different. Um, Jonah went into the depths of the sea in order to save the sailors, but Jesus went into the depths of death and separation from God, hell itself, in order to save Jonah. Jonah's crushed under the weight of the waves and the breakers of God's waters, but Jesus was buried under the waves and billows of God's wrath. So hear me, and then I'm going to stop talking. No matter how big of a mess or how divided your mind or self-centered your heart or doubtful you are, or how hard you've tried to run, God's grace is for you, just like it was for Jonah. Okay? Let's pray, and then we'll go to small groups. Lord, would you by your Holy Spirit meet us here in our struggling and in our confusion and give each one of us assurance or reassurance of your love? And if some of us are not struggling but maybe feeling stuck or alone, would you please make your presence with these women very evident Father, thank you that you pursue your children so patiently, so lovingly, even when your mercy seems severe. Grant that we would look to you each and every time, full of faith, that you hear us when we cry out. Amen.